I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Going to test and see how this sounds. I'm going to record for just a minute and say hello. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. Okay. Oh, and let me pull up my notes for this show. Hello. There we go. Hi. <laughs> okay. I'm this lady's daughter. Yes, you are. Okay, so let's say it together. One, two. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tusco. And I'm this lady's daughter. And we are on week, we're finishing up week three of homeschooling, aren't we? We're learning a lot. Yeah. This is the coronavirus edition of the Renaissance English History Podcast. The Coronavirus Quarantine Edition. Yay! So, as we established there, I am your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 142. And it's all about the year 1527. So you can get show notes for this episode at englandcast.com slash 1527. That's englandcast.com slash 1527. So I just want to give a couple of quick notes in here to, again, check out the Agora podcast of the month, which is When Diplomacy Fails from Zach. It's an amazing show all about when diplomacy fails. So if you are quarantined and looking for something new to listen to, check that out. Also, if you would like to do a kind thing for this show, um, it would be so amazing. I would be ever so grateful if you could go on to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this show, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, anywhere, and leave a rating, a good rating, I hope, so that others can help others can find this show as well. It makes a huge difference. Ratings are like the number one kind of way that algorithms work, um, that those algorithms work in bringing up recommendations. So if you can go on and leave a rating, I would be so incredibly appreciative. About 10 years ago, I read the Bill Bryson book, 
that did a deep dive into one summer in American history. For him, it was 1927. It was an amazing journey into American history done in a really creative way. I love Bill Bryson anyway. And this was just such a great, just looking at the events of one summer in 1927 was really great. So I've wanted to do something for a while similar to that on this podcast. And I decided to look into the year 1527, 400 years before Bill Bryson's book on American history. And we're just going to walk through the events of one year, putting them into the context of the greater story of Henry VIII's reign. So 1527 would be the year that Henry's great matter began. But when the year began, his growing infatuation with Anne Boleyn was still a well-kept secret. Henry VIII was still a devout Catholic and servant of the Pope. In 1526, copies of William Tyndale's English Bible began making their way into England, and the Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall, was busy trying to collect them all so that he could burn them. In the late autumn of 1526, we see Hans Holbein arriving in England for his initial two-year period. Henry spent Christmas that year with his family. His daughter Mary was back. She was close to turning 11. She came home from Wales, where she was presiding over the Council of the Marshes. She came home to spend Christmas with her family. Henry was perhaps getting resigned to the idea that he would never have any more children with his wife, Catherine of Aragon. But he still had Henry Fitzroy, who was about seven at Christmas in 1526 and had been officially recognized as Henry's son in 1525. So things were likely strained with Henry and his wife, Catherine, but they may have reached some kind of tense peace sort of ceasefire by this point. Henry's mind was likely wandering, though, as 1526 came to a close. In the spring of that year, he had asked Anne Boleyn to be his mistress and she had initially refused and had spent that summer of 1526 back at her family's estates, trying to potentially avoid the king's attention. In late 1525, so the year before Christmas that we're talking about right now, Anne had become involved with Thomas Wyatt, a poet, which had drawn her into the king's circle. That year, Wyatt had separated from his wife and accused her of adultery, Supposedly, he had plans to pursue Anne further in 1526, but Henry's plans got in the way of that, and Wyatt was sent on a diplomatic mission to Italy, out of sight, out of mind. Anne herself wasn't at court for Christmas in 1526. She was still hiding away at Hever, and would return later that year in 1527. The court spent the holiday at Woolsey's Palace York Place, future Whitehall, There were masks and balls and feasts. David Starkey has said that Anne wasn't present because that was the year that she gave Henry the famous gift of the jeweled ship for her New Year's gift and the, you know, the ship that was tossing at sea. And that's that very famous gift she gave him. And Henry wrote to her at Hever to thank her for it. For Anne, Christmas of 1526 seems to be when she made the decision that she would say yes to Henry. 1527 would be the year that the great matter officially began, and as Henry was feasting and dancing in London, he likely may have thought about the following Christmas, that he would have a new young wife, possibly pregnant, and the old one put away in a nunnery. How wrong he would be. We'll talk about that in a minute, but let's also look at where foreign policy stood at the beginning of 1527. 
England and France were at peace, and Henry was planning to sign a new treaty of friendship with them. To that end, he began to work on a new banqueting hall in Greenwich in January. He wanted to put his best foot forward when the ambassadors arrived. With Princess Mary headed back to Ludlow that month in mid-January, with the familial obligations out of the way, Henry could focus all of his energy on wooing his future mistress and second wife. Anne arrived back to court by late February and was given her own apartments. It was clear to everyone that she had a special place in Henry's heart. Henry was visiting her regularly, and she seems to have accepted his proposal of marriage as soon as he could get a divorce. As spring came up and the flowers bloomed, Henry had a lot on his plate. He welcomed French diplomats to negotiate a new peace, but things got a bit complicated when they were negotiating for a marriage for Princess Mary. So Henry wanted to seal the alliance with Princess Mary marrying into the French family. The diplomats said that they'd heard that Henry's marriage wasn't valid because he had married his brother's widow, and they were worried about Mary's legitimacy. Now, whether this was actually a concern or them simply doing Henry a solid, I'm not sure. But by April, Henry had Woolsey working full-time on figuring out what to do about getting out of his marriage. He had a couple of options open to him, including he could prove that the dispensation granted in 1503 by Pope Julius II allowing him to marry Catherine was invalid on some kind of technical point. He could prove that Julius II had exceeded his papal powers by granting the dispensation. Or three, he could persuade Catherine to enter a convent. In May, the French ambassadors returned to celebrate the new peace treaty that had been agreed, and Henry organized Jalson parties. Now, they still didn't have a marriage treaty for Mary yet at this point. That would come later. But they had parties and jousts, and Catherine of Aragon was still the queen, sitting under her cloth of estate. But it was Anne who Henry chose as his dancing partner. Henry sat in the new banqueting house next to Catherine and Princess Mary, along with his sister, Mary the French Queen, now the Duchess of Suffolk. They had a pageant that was called the Father of Heaven, in which lions, dragons, and greyhounds held candlesticks. And then figures of love and riches were forced to debate their various merits between the figure of Jupiter, and each believed themselves to be more important than the other. There was a visiting Venetian, Gasparo Spinelli. He described the ladies of the court whose various styles of beauty and apparel, enhanced by the brilliancy of the lights, caused me to think I was contemplating the choirs of angels. Inside the pageant that would come afterwards, the women were even more beautiful, he wrote, as to be supposed goddesses rather than human beings. They were arrayed in cloth of gold, their hair gathered into a net with very richly jeweled garland, surmounted by a velvet cap, the hanging sleeves of their surcoats being so long that they well nigh touched the ground, and so well and richly wrought as to be no slight ornament to their beauty. Later, when Henry chose Anne to dance with him, the ambassadors reported, we were in the queen's apartments where there was dancing, and the king danced with Mr. Spoolin, who was brought up in France with the late queen. Dancing thus, they presented themselves to the king, their dance being very delightful by reason of its variety, as they formed certain groups and figures most pleasing to the sight. Henry and France were celebrating the new Treaty of Westminster. 
The Treaty of Westminster agreed that an Anglo-French embassy would be sent to Spain to negotiate the release of Francis II's two sons and the repayment of Charles's debts to England and peace in Europe. Henry also agreed to give up all claims to the French throne in return for a yearly payment from France. But really, Henry was working Woolsey behind the scenes even harder to figure out a way forward for him and Anne. By early summer, Woolsey had a plan. He would summon Henry to a papal court to bring concerns about the marriage to him directly. Henry would be charged with cohabitating with his brother's widow and ordered to separate from her. Within a month, Henry would be married to Anne, he thought. About a week after the Treaty of Westminster celebrations in mid-May, Henry was summoned to the ecclesiastical court at Woolsey's York Place, where he admitted to the charge of living with his brother's widow. The court was adjourned to think about the case. Things didn't go as Henry and Woolsey had expected. The counselors decided that since the Pope could overturn any decision they made, they should just refer the entire question to him. When Henry sat down with Catherine to discuss all of these developments the next day, on the 18th of May, it did not go well. Catherine was not pleased and was not willing to go easily. Then, just a couple weeks after that, they heard about the sack of Rome, which had happened on the 6th of May. The Swiss guards trying to defend the Pope so heroically, their actions are actually still commemorated each year. The sack of Rome meant that Pope Clement VII was actually under the control of Catherine's nephew, and any quick decision on Henry's marriage was not going to happen. Charles V also had another reason to gloat. That month, he would have a son, the future Philip II. Charles had the Pope and a son. Henry had neither. But Henry did not give up. In June, he sent counselors to Rome to ask the Pope to give an opinion. He had three choices. He could issue a dispensation allowing Catherine to enter a convent. He could issue a dispensation which would allow Henry to take a second wife for the sole purpose of begetting a male heir. Or he could extend Woolsey's legatine power, allowing Woolsey to try the case in England on the Pope's behalf. Henry was clearly in a stressful mood as the summer began, which only got worse as the plague season kicked into gear. The weather had been bad for England since April, with thunderstorms and heavy rains most days, making it really hard to plant and grow the seeds. By the autumn, the harvest would be down over a third of the normal amount, meaning that the winter of 1527 and 28 was actually going to be really hungry for most people. And it was made even worse because the harvest of 1526, the year before, seems to have been a partial failure. In early 1527, corn began to run short in London, and for a week or more, there was actually an acute famine. The bread carts coming from Stratford had to be guarded by sheriffs and their men all the way from Mile End to their proper market. And the high price of corn continued into the summer of 1528. So we have this year of 1527 where people are really hungry, bread is really expensive, there's potential riots, so much so that the sheriffs actually have to guard the bread carts. And it's in that mess, in that summer, as plague is kicking up, that Henry is finding out all of this bad news about the Pope and his potential divorce. Henry would have left London when the sweating sickness picked up and then been in an even fouler mood when Bishop John Fisher and Thomas More told Henry that they thought his marriage to Catherine was valid. 
In July, Catherine smuggled a letter out of England to her nephew, Charles V, begging him for help in her cause. She really wanted her case to be tried in Rome because she did not believe that she would receive justice in England. Also in July, there was a group of about a thousand people headed by Wolsey. They were off to meet with Francis II, and Wolsey talked to Francis about the king's great matter, as the divorce was now referred to. At this point, we wonder about the timeline of when Wolsey realized that Henry wanted a divorce to marry Anne Boleyn. Wolsey openly talked of a possibility of a French bride for Henry with Francis, leading some historians to believe that Wolsey was in the dark at this point. But it was perhaps just a ruse as well, because in July, Wolsey received a letter from a friend of his, Richard Sampson, who was with the king in England. And in this letter, Sampson refers to the two parties involved in the great matter, referring both to Catherine and Anne, talking about what kind of mood they were each in. So Wolsey probably knew at this point, and maybe he was just talking about the French marriage to kind of butter up France in asking for their help. Also in July that year, in London, a little baby was born named John Dee. He would, of course, grow up to be a leading scientist and mathematician at Elizabeth's court. Life was continuing on despite Henry's marital issues and the famine. Also in London, the Friars of the Holy Cross borrowed 27 pounds and 10 shillings to keep operating. But, of course, within 10 years, they would be dissolved. That summer also, Henry went out and acted on his own. He decided to send his secretary, William Knight, directly to the Pope, circumventing Wolsey, to secure permission to remarry. It's possible that Henry was unsure that Wolsey was going to offer his wholehearted support. More than likely, he was just kind of embarrassed about what he was doing, and he wanted to handle it discreetly. Now, this upset Wolsey, not just because the king had gone around him, but also Henry's request for the dispensation to remarry before securing an annulment of his first marriage sort of took away any kind of moral authority that he had had. If he's already starting to ask for a dispensation to marry a second time before he even has the first one taken care of, it looks like maybe his worry that his marriage is wrong and that's his only reason for wanting out of his marriage is because of his religious beliefs. Maybe that's not altogether, you know, the whole story. So Woolsey thought that this was going to undermine his whole mission in the first place. And this is actually, this secretary's trip to Rome that summer in August is where we get the story of Henry VIII seeking the dispensation because of his relationship with Anne's sister and potentially mother. And it's where he said, only the sister, not the mother. So that kind of famous story about whether or not Henry had had a relationship with all of the Boleyn women um, comes from Knight's trip to Rome that summer. In August of that year, Anne joined Henry on a hunting party. And for the first time, they lived together openly. And everyone realized that he was planning to marry her as soon as the annulment of his marriage came through. Henry did have some other activities to take care of this month, though. This was the month that he signed a treaty agreeing to the betrothal of Princess Mary to Francis II's son, Henry. This was also a commercial treaty where England was going to suspend trade with the Netherlands in favor of France, and also a treaty to mutually refuse to attend a general council while the Pope remained captive. It was also agreed that both countries would demand the release of Francis II's sons by Charles V. 
Charles V was accumulating a rather large menagerie and collection of prisoners by this point. He had the French king's son, he had the pope, also he had a son himself. So he was feeling really kind of on top of the world right now. What Catherine was thinking during most of this time in the late summer, early autumn, can only be guessed. But of course, she grew more pious as her future years in separation would show. Four years later, in 1531, she would write to Charles V, My tribulations are so great, my life so disturbed by the plans daily invented to further the king's wicked intention. The surprises which the king gives me with certain persons of his council are so mortal, and my treatment is what God knows, that it is enough to shorten ten lives, much more mine. So, at this point, she probably thought that she could outlast Henry's infatuation with Anne, and that she had the upper hand and the Pope would rule in favor of her, and life would get back to normal, a little bit of normal, whatever normal is, with this little hiccup soon turning into just kind of a blip. Things looked positive when in November, Charles actually told the Pope that he shouldn't make any movements on behalf of Henry with the divorce against his aunt. But back in September, it became clear that the harvests were going to be terrible, largely because, like I said, the weather in the spring was so awful. But of course, this was all going to be blamed on Anne and Woolsey, and much of the population really disapproved of Queen Catherine being put away. It was going to be a hungry year, and people were doing their best to prepare for the famine that they knew would be coming their way by winter. This particular harvest of 1527 was actually one of the most disastrous of the entire Tudor period. The only worse ones were 1556 and 1596, but only just worse. All the way until 1528, the price of grains would be two-thirds higher than normal. Henry and his government tried to help that year. In September, when there was so much unrest, a revolution was actually feared. The situation became so critical that Henry decided to take drastic action. On the 26th of September that year, he sent orders to the justices of the peace in Kent, commissioning them to search for grain. So these orders actually assumed that there was enough grain in Kent to supply everybody, but he was worried that people were hoarding the grain for selfish gain. I could insert something in here about toilet paper and panic buying, (laughs) Because it seems, you know, apropos of what's going on in the world right now. But, you know, you just think about that for yourselves. So the justices were commanded to, quote, divide yourselves into sundry places and parts of the said county, and not only to view, search, and try what grains and corns be in the houses, barns, garners, or ricks, but also to seek out individuals who had more grain than they needed, who were hoarding grain and to bind them to bring the grain to market. Individuals who refused this were to be arrested and potentially put in jail. And the justices were supposed to report back to the council if they couldn't conveniently do the same so that they could make further preparations in that part. So we don't actually know the results of the search in Kent, but the government must have been satisfied enough with how it turned out because it then instituted this whole idea of these searches on a national scale just about two weeks later. And then on November the 12th, a general proclamation directed both against middlemen who forestalled, regretted, or engrossed grain and producers who hoarded surplus grain. So, you know, the people who are buying up the hand sanitizer and selling them on Amazon for like $100, that was forbidden. 
So this was how Henry tried to help in the face of these coming food shortages. They sought to restrict the activities of the middlemen who raised the price of grain by purchasing it on the way to market or before it had been harvested in order to resell it. So throughout the autumn, the government was very worried about the unrest and the starving people. By December, the hunger was setting in and everybody was worried about the long winter with little food ahead. The Duke of Norfolk wrote to Woolsey, The secret search was made last Monday night through Suffolk and Norfolk. A great number of vagabonds were punished and treated according to their instructions, at which the people are very joyful. The search for corn began on Wednesday last, and he hopes that it will be done in Suffolk before Christmas, though not so soon in Norfolk, as there is more there. He has heard of two people who were occasioners of the affair at Stowe Market, of which Sir Thomas Tyrrell informed Woolsey, and has sent them to prison at Ipswich, where they shall stand in the pillory next Saturday, market day, unless Woolsey orders otherwise. At Ipswich was taken a poor Fleming who has made two false groats, which are enclosed. He will not confess that he had any accomplices or that he made any more, but prints of pence and halfpence, graven in cuddle bones, were found at his house. He might confess more if he were put to some pains, but the Duke dares not do this without the King's license. So we have Flemish people, perhaps counterfeiting, and maybe putting them to pains if the king approves. All of this was done to try to keep rebellion in check and try and make sure that the population wasn't starving and that people who were taking advantage of the system were seen to be punished. In in terms of Henry's love life, the year ended without the quick and easy annulment that he was hoping for. Throughout the autumn, the Boleyn family began to suspect that Woolsey wasn't actually working for their own good, but was instead trying to stall the annulment. They were especially suspicious of the fact that he had held up Henry's secretary, Knight, on his mission to the Pope. So when Woolsey found out about it, he had stalled Knight for a while until he could figure out more of what was going on. And that did not make the the Boleyn family very happy. And they would continue to plant that seed of suspicion in Henry's mind, and that would grow even more in 1528. In December, Pope Clement had negotiated his freedom, so he had been in prison for about six months. But he was really scared to upset Charles V, and so he agreed that he wouldn't make any moves on behalf of Henry. In January of 1528, he announced that he will be sending a papal legate, Cardinal Campeggio, to London directly And that, of course, is where we get the famous Blackfriars trial and Catherine of Aragon's speech where she stood up and made the big scene and and awed everybody. But that, my friends, is another year and another episode. So that's it for this week. What did you think about this episode? Did you like the year in review? Let me know. You can get in touch with me through Facebook, facebook.com slash EnglandCast, through Twitter at Tesco. Or you can text the listener support line at 8016-TESCO. That's 801-683-9756. All right, I will be back again in another couple of weeks, potentially with my daughter helping. Who knows? (laughs) Whatever you are doing in quarantine, I hope that you are safe and well and taking care of yourselves And just being really gentle and giving yourselves a lot of grace and a lot of space because this is a scary time for everybody, but we're all going to get through it together, right? All right. I will be back in a couple of weeks and I will talk to you then. (laughs) Bye.
Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Daughter's lady, lady daughter. Yeah.